Bibles and turn to Romans 8. Romans 8. If you've been with us now for the past, what, year? I mean, it's been a while since we've been in Romans 8. I was talking to somebody last week, and I told them that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 50 sermons in Romans 8. And when I first started, I thought, wow, that's a lot of sermons in Romans 8. And now I'm almost to the end. I'm like, how did he restrain himself? Because it's almost like every word you could preach an entire sermon on. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to do that today. But I just want you to get a flavor of how powerful and deep this passage really is. And when we go through this, I want you to be thinking to yourself as we go through this, what does this mean for me? Because that's what Paul is like pulling us toward. Um, We've talked about the fact that I think, you know, some scholars say this is the most Um, probably the most significant uh, chapter in all the Bible. Some would even call it the greatest chapter in the Bible. I'm a Presbyterian, so I'm not going to call it that maybe anymore because I believe in the inspiration of Scripture, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's equally powerful. But if I came to your bedside to tell you about the glory of God and you're about to die, I'm going to read Romans 8 and not the first couple chapters of Chronicles. All right, That's what I'm going to do for you. And so that's the power behind these verses. And so we're going to read them, and um, we're going to start at verse number 31 down to verse number 39. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inspired word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He do not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's my favorite verse, by the way, in this chapter. It's an amazing verse, and we're going to look at it today. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all of God's people say, And the grass withers and the flower fades. For the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the power and the amazing reality of your word. Lord, even reading this portion of the end of Romans 8, our hearts swell at the reality that indeed nothing in this world can separate us from you that nothing in this world could condemn us, that nothing in this world 
will oppose us to the extent that it will be victorious. And so even now, O Lord, settle our hearts. Help us to be reminded of these truths. And bless our time now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, there's certain scriptures I read, and after I read it as a pastor, I feel like I don't have to preach. Right? And I know there's several pastors in the room, and I know you're like that. There's certain passages we read, and just the reading of them, you're just like, I don't have to say anything else. Because God's word is so magnificent and so powerful, so quick, I don't need to explain them because they speak for themselves. And that's Romans 8, 31 through 39. You could just read it over and over and over and over again. And the words themselves are just so powerful and they cut us so deep that we don't have to say anything about them. Glory be to God. Because the words themselves speak to us in a very powerful way. And that's this passage. And so what I'm going to do is, because I'm a preacher, you know, I have to talk. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we do. And I have to explain a little bit. But, I, but I'm going to explain it, but I don't want to detract from it. And in fact, when you leave here today, I want you to go home and I want you to read it yourself and let it soak in. Because that's how powerful this word is. And I hope you feel that here today. So let's, let's dive in. But there are some of you that were not here when we did Romans 8.28. And to understand Romans 8.31 through 39, I have to tell you just briefly about Romans 8.28. And here's what we said about Romans 8.28. One of the things we said at the very end that makes that verse such a powerful verse in the life of a believer is that notice with me, and at the end of verse number 30, it ends with the word glorified. And you remember I told you at the very end that all the verbs that are in verse number 30 are in the past tense, all of them. But that's the one you expect to be in the future because that hasn't happened yet. But if you notice in the passage, Paul puts it in the past tense for this reason. Because our glorification is so assured, it's so nailed down, it's so locked in that Paul could put it in the past tense because it's just now like we've been glorified. It's that powerful. So he's saying that the promise of Romans 8.28 stands that all things work together for good because God's elective purposes in our life are so sure, so certain that it's just like we've been glorified and in heaven right now. Amen. That's a mic drop, by the way. It, by the way, if you're, if you're like writing, if you like write down notes, I just want you to put that's a mic drop verse. Because it is. What else needs to be said? God will glorify us. That's the promise of Scripture. He has laid out a path for us. That's our predestination. He's elected us. He's foreknown us. Those things are set in heaven. And therefore, what else needs to be said? It's almost like Romans uh, 8, 31 through 39 doesn't need to be said because Paul's already said it. So, Pastor Dennis, if that's the case, then why did he say it? Well, the answer to that question is actually found in the very first verse, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? Now, if you've read through Romans enough times, you'll notice something over and over. There's a bunch of questions in Romans, amen? 
I took some time, and I counted them, and there are almost 80 questions in the book of Romans. Now, some of you are looking at me and saying, Dennis, why did you take so much time to count the amount of questions in the book of Romans? Shouldn't you be hanging out with your wife? I can multitask. <laughs> right? That's something I do well. I try. But there are 80 questions in the book of Romans, and I want you to ask yourself the question, why are there 80 questions in the book of Romans? It's probably the book with the most amount of questions in it. And by the way, if you're looking for a Bible study, go through the book of Romans and count the amount of questions, and look at what these questions are calling us to. It's actually pretty powerful. But here's the point I want to make. One of the reasons why there are 80 questions in the book of Romans, and even in this small section from verse 31 through 35, you'll notice that there are about seven questions in total. And you have to ask yourself the question, why is that? Here's why. Listen up. Paul didn't need to write anything after Romans 8.30 because he already made a convincing case that our glorification is sure. He already made a convincing case that all things work together for good. So why does he introduce the questions? Remember this and write this down if you don't already know this. We are creatures beset by doubt and fear. Beset by doubt and fear. Even though we have the promises of God, even though God has already told us that all things work together for good, even if it's the case that we know that our glorification is sure, what is one thing that Paul knows about us? By the way, this is what makes Paul not just a great exegete of Scripture, but an amazing exegete of the heart. Because what Paul knows about you and I is even though we know the promises of God, even though we're sure of the promises of God, Paul knows that we're people that continue to doubt and continue to live in fear. And what these questions do for us is to remind us that it's okay to live a little bit in that doubt and fear. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was an English pastor, um, in one of his books, you probably have read it, it was the one on, on uh, depression. I think it's called Spiritual Depression. And when I went through a season of spiritual depression, I read through that book. And I'll never forget one of the things he says. And, and this is a remarkable statement. Man, I love when people make these statements because they just speak to my heart. And listen to what he says. He says, faith means perpetual unbelief kept quiet. My goodness. Think about that. Think about what faith, this is how we describe faith. Faith, it means perpetual unbelief kept quiet. What does that mean for you and I? What is he saying to you and I? He's saying this, and to me this is profound, that for the vast majority of us, we live in unbelief and fear. We don't all have the same fears. We don't all doubt in the same way, but each and every person in this room have doubt and fears about their faith. And one of the things that the gospel does is keep those doubts quiet. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, what shall we say to these things? You might have a translation that says, what do you think about that? 
What do you think about what I just said? What do you think about the teachings of Scripture? In fact, he said this particular uh, verse number 31, the very first question, he said that five times in the book, over and over again. What do you think about what I just said? Because what he just said is important. And by the way, let me say this too at the very beginning. One of the things about Christianity that I love is Christianity actually, actually allows you to doubt it. Isn't that amazing? By the way, how many places can you go right now in our country, in our world, that when you step in, they allow you to doubt? Imagine going into PETA and telling them, you know, I think it's okay for us to eat meat. Yeah, I think it's okay for us to eat meat. And the people at PETA look at you and say, oh, that's interesting. Here's the door. Because we don't eat meat in PETA. That's not what we do. But in Christianity, one of the things that I love about our faith is that our faith allows us to actually doubt it. In fact, what did God say? Finish this for me. Come, let us do what? Reason together, says the Lord. Why would the Lord invite you to reason with him if he expects you to have no questions? When I first became a believer, I remember the first, for the first six months, right? Man, I was on cloud nine. And most of you know me. When I'm on cloud nine, I'm on cloud nine. Right? Crazy, crazy, just loving Jesus. And right around the sixth month, man, all kinds of doubts and fears began to creep in. And you know what I did? I didn't tell anybody. Do you know why? I was in a church that wasn't that receptive to questions. That in fact, if you had questions about your faith, that was a sign of weakness. Hey, I just want to tell you something about CBPC. I know some of you are visiting. Now, some of you are college students. This is a place where you can bring your doubts and fears. This is a place where we can dialogue about scripture because there's some big things going on right now in our culture and our society where we need to reason together. And the Bible actually allows for that. Bring your questions. Dialogue with us because we have a God that does that. Francis Schaeffer used to say what? That honest questions deserve what? honest answers and that's what the bible provides and so these questions that we see what's amazing about these questions is that these are questions that the apostle paul have these are questions about the doubts that he have and that he's working through and you might be sitting here today again your doubts your your questions might be completely different but what Paul outlines here is a doubt and a question for everybody. And I want to introduce you to three. Now relax. It's 1116. I'm not going to go all three. It's going to take two hours. But I'm going to keep preaching. And then whenever the time comes, I'm going to kind of wrap up. And then we'll pick it up next week. So even if you're visiting, if you live like 300 miles away, you've got to come back. Because, you know, um, I'll tell them, stop the live stream. You know, you can't watch it online. You have to come back. So if you're taking notes again, here are the three. You ready? The first fear and doubts, and these are collectives, are opposition. Notice verse 31 and 32. After he gives that statement, what shall we say to these things? The first one is, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered us from all, how shall he not with him graciously give us all things? That's the opposition, verse 31 through 32. And then 
The next fear we have is condemnation. That's verse 33 through 34. And then separation, verse 35 down to verse number 39. Everybody ready? Let's do this. Let's begin with verse 31 to 32, opposition. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I want you to circle the word who if you're in the habit of writing in your Bibles. Or if you're taking notes, write down the word who. Who is significant. Notice he doesn't say what. The opposition against the Christian is real. It's not something nebulous. It's not something imagined. There is a spiritual opposition towards the Christian. That's the devil. And then there's an actual real world, real world opposition towards the Christians. And here's what Paul is saying in essence that's so powerful in my mind. He's saying, first of all, Christianity will be opposed. You can be sure of that. It exists. That's the first fear. That's the real fear. We will be opposed. And a second fear similar to that, which is the second part of verse number 32, is this. The second question that he asks, if God actually, uh, it's, yeah, it says, he who did not spare his own son but deliver up from it, delivered him up for us all, how will he not um, with him graciously give us all things? That's another aspect of the opposition. And it simply means this. Will God help us? if we're being opposed? So those are the two questions, and let me hit those real quick. First of all, yes, we are in a cultural moment where our faith is being opposed. Several weeks ago, I watched a town hall of this guy. He was, if you could tell, he was the only Christian on a panel, and every time they asked questions, I mean, this guy would give the standard scriptural argument to whatever they were saying. And it wasn't like this guy was being mean. It wasn't like this guy was being um, un, like not gracious. He was just saying what the Bible said. And I was shocked to find out everyone on that panel started giving him the side eye. And they were grunting. And they started like laying into him full force. And man, I was like looking at this guy like, wow. And my first instinct was to pray for him. And then as I went to pray for him, I said, wait a minute, this happened like a month ago. I don't need to like, you know, this isn't happening live right now. I don't have to like go into prayer for him. But my heart went out to the guy because he was in desperate opposition just for saying what the Bible says. And let me tell you, there are some of you inside here today, you're in situations where your faith is being opposed. And hey, I got to tell you, if you've ever been in that situation, now this guy did a fantastic job. But if you've ever been in that situation, it's kind of scary. It's kind of scary. Some of you are in public school. You know this to be the case. If you talk about Christ openly, some people will oppose you. Some of you are in jobs where if you talk about Christ openly, you will be opposed. That's a real, live reality, that there's opposition to the Christian faith. And as long as you go out in the public square, you'll have opposition to your faith as well. Now, let me say this, because this is very important in my mind. Paul understands the fear that you feel. Think about the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Who was opposed in his ministry more than the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul understands what it means for you to be in a situation and have your faith challenged, 
This was his daily reality. He was always in a public square. His faith was always being challenged. And notice what Paul says. Notice how Paul catechizes his heart. Look again in verse number one. If God is for us, circle the word for or write it down. Because that word for is a powerful word. It's actually the word on behalf of. And the reason why that's significant is it's the same word that Paul uses over and over again to describe our justification. And here's what's so powerful about it. I get giddy when I think about things like this. Wish you all knew Greek a little bit, because then I'd get really like nerdy and giddy, and that's a serious combination, right? But here's what Paul is saying in essence. Paul is saying that the same God that reached down and delivered you when you were a sinner, that brought you out of darkness into light, that saved you from a life of sin, death, and hell, that same God is the same God that will deliver you from opposition if you stand up for him in the world. It's the same God. It's the same power. It's the blessing that the Christian has in the world. You know, we have missionaries here. We have pastors here. And they'll tell you opposition is uncomfortable. No, I, I have to tell you, there are sometimes I go on the airplane and I start talking to somebody and they ask me what I do. And I'm almost tempted not to say I'm a pastor. I read, in, I read in a book one, where, one day, somebody said, tell them you are a spiritual healer and see what they say. Or you teach the science of living blessedly forever. Anybody ever heard that? I love that one. It's one of my favorite. Start telling people I teach the science of living blessedly forever. Now, why would I be tempted to tell people that? Why would you be tempted to not share your faith? Because opposition is scary. Opposition is scary. We don't want the people that we work with to think we're weird. We don't want our neighbors to think that we're weird. Opposition to the Christian faith is something that we live with regularly as Christians. And oftentimes we are tempted to hide our Christianity because we don't want the world to think we're strange or weird. We don't want the blowback that comes with being a Christian. And what Paul is saying here is you have to understand God is for you. He will deliver you. Glory be to God for that reality. But Paul says something else here that's pretty profound. Verse number 32, one of my favorite verses, not just in Romans 8, but in all the Bible. Notice what he says. Now, remember, the first part is this. We are afraid of opposition. If you're afraid of opposition inside here today, some of you I know aren't, but if you are, God says, I am for you. I will deliver you. Just like how I delivered you from death and hell in your justification, I will deliver you in your sanctification. But notice the second part. And the second part is curious. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's the fear here? The fear is this. Will God help me? Will God help me in the midst of this opposition? And why would Paul phrase it like that? Paul is using an argument here again. If you take notes, write this down. Call the argument from the greater to the lesser. And here's what Paul is saying in essence. If it is the case that God delivered you from death and hell, from sin, 
If he did not spare his son in that delivery, what makes you think he won't give you all things? That's the argument from the greater to the lesser. And let me say this, the greater the greater, the more powerful the argument. What did God spare in your redemption? The answer to that question is nothing, because he gave his son. What it is right now do you think God is incapable of giving you? Because whatever the answer to that question is, it should be nothing. But all of us know that even though we know that we're saved, even though we know that we're on our way to heaven, if you're a believer, you know that we struggle with wondering, is God going to provide the extra? I remember um, many years ago, um, I was glued to the television. It was about 2018, and some of you probably remember this. But in about 2018, um, there was a dramatic rescue of a group of soccer players. They were, they were like 12 years old, 11, 12 years old, and their coach from Caves. Anybody remember that story? Man, that's a powerful story. I, I, I almost skipped work to go to it. I mean, I mean, to watch it. I mean, it was just like there was this powerful story. And in the midst of the story, uh, when all the story was over, I was just curious of what did, what did it take to deliver them? And I remember writing this down. Here, here's what it took to deliver them. The rescue elf effort involved as many as 10,000 people, including more than 100 divers, scores of rescue workers, representatives from 100 government agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 police helicopters, 7 ambulances, more than 700 diving cylinders, and the pumping of more than 1 billion liters of water um, uh, um, in the cave, for two weeks in order to deliver those people. That's a lot, isn't it? Now imagine if those young boys came out of that cave and said to one of the rescue workers, are, are we going to get a cup of water? Are, are you guys going to give us something to eat? Are, are, are we going to go home? Now you're looking at me, all of you are looking at me, and you're saying, Pastor Dennis, that's ridiculous. Well, let me tell you something. You do the exact same thing every day. You're sitting down there, and there's something that you're worried about. Whether you're a new student, you're worried about, wow, wonder how this semester's going to go. Man, I hope I pass all my classes. You're sitting down there as a mom wondering, Man, is my child going to come to know Christ? Or you're sitting down there wondering, am I going to have the money to do this? Is God going to work in my marriage? Is whatever, whatever you put in the blank, ask yourself the question, if God did not spare his own son but deliver him up for us all, how could he not give you what it is that you're looking for. We do the same thing every day. That's what Paul is saying here, and that's the power behind this argument. But I have another argument for you, and it's called the argument from the lesser to the greater, and it's even more subtle. Because notice in this text, Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Who is the us all? Sinners. 
if God did not spare his son when we were sinners, what do you think now that we are his chosen people? Will he hold or withhold anything from you now? Do you see how that argument works? Now that you belong to him, now that that he calls you by name, now that you have the ability to call him Abba Father, if you belong to him, what makes you think he's not going to do even more than what he did when you were a sinner? That's the power behind this argument, and that's why it's so beautiful. I have one more for you because it's just amazing. Notice verse number 33. Paul says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This gets to our second one. And our second one is this, the fear of condemnation. Why do we fear condemnation? Now, let me say this. We do not fear condemnation in the sense that we fear being accused. What we are afraid of when we are condemned is, is it true? When I was a young man, and I did something wrong, and I hid from my mother. She used to call me, and I didn't come. Don't pretend like you never did that. I pretended like I didn't hear her because I was condemned. And whatever she's calling me for, you better believe it was true. Why would I go to her? Makes no sense. I never understood why kids, I don't even understand why my kids do that. Like, yeah, you're, you're being condemned right now. And yet they come willingly. Praise the Lord. But all of us have done that. Why? Because we're not just afraid of condemnation. What if it's true? What if what we're being accused of is true? Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, famously would have these conversations with the devil. And, and he said that in his study late at night, the devil would come accuse him. And the devil would say, you're the worst person in the world. You're a liar. You're prideful. You're stubborn. Nobody likes you. You're awful. And he would let the devil go on and on and on. And then Martin Luther would say, you are absolutely correct. I am all those things. But, but, you left off the most important thing. And that is that my sins are taken care of by the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all of us inside here today, notice what Martin Luther did. He didn't say, actually, that's not true. I'm not that bad. And see, that's what this world does when it comes to sin. One of the things that this world does when it comes to sin is they say, well, you know what? Yeah, you know, those things are kind of true, but it's not that bad. That's not really me. But he didn't deny sin. He did the exact opposite. He said, yes, that is me. And as you look at your life, you see your own sin, don't deny the sin in your life. Say, yes, that's me. But what's different about me is that even though that's true, there's something else that's true about me that you're not saying, and that is I'm covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when all of us are condemned, and when we sit down and we think of our own sin, and our hearts begin to condemn us, I want you to remember this word. It is God who justifies. You do not justify yourself. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot deliver a plea or an argument that is persuasive against yourself. 
All you can do is simply say, yes, that's me, but I've been justified by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to end with this. I was reading the other day. I love to read the life of Christ, and I came to the end, and it struck me that I was, as I was reading Jesus's um, death, uh, there's the seven sayings of Jesus. Some of you are familiar with that. I was struck to find out, you know, there's only one question. I was like, there's a question there. And the question, and most of you know it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a cry of dereliction. And in that moment, I began to ponder that, that Christ, here he is hanging on the cross. And just like Paul is saying here, he's bringing his fears. He's crying out. He's about to be separated from the Father. And he's asking the question, why have you forsaken me? Why, why is it that I feel separated from you? And do you remember what God said? That's right. He said nothing. He said nothing. But do you remember what Christ said next to him? Christ said this, into my hands I command your spirit. And here's what's awesome about that reality. When you bring your fears and your doubts to God, like Paul is doing here, there are times when we get answers, but I'll tell you this, there's many times I never got an answer. There's times I have fears and doubts. I still do. I'm a pastor. I read God's word. I study God's word. And I live in this weird space of just always asking, Lord, is this true? Is your word true? Is this real? And I don't always get the answers. But as Christ did, I'm learning to say, into, my, into your hands I commend my spirit. It's a way of total submission to God where we say, God, I might not know what you're doing in this space. I might not understand. You're not speaking to my doubts and fears. But I'm going to continue to trust you because I believe that what you're saying is true. Maybe that's you in here today. You've come in this place and you have all kinds of fears and doubts. I want to say to you right now, put your hands in Christ in simple faith and says, into my hands I commit, I command, I give over my spirit for you to have full sway. That's what we do with our doubts. That's what we do with our fears. Father, we thank you so much that by the power of your word, Paul reminds us in a beautiful way that it's okay for us to be fearful and to doubt. It's okay. But at the same time, help us to doubt our doubts. And in those moments when you do not speak to us in a way that makes it clear, help us to just commit ourselves to you. Lord, I pray for the one that does not know you. May they even today commit their spirit to you in humble faith. In Jesus' name, amen.